Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of the show. And aloha. I'm Tyler Buckingham. I'm the other co-host. <laughs> well, that's an appropriate greeting for this show because we're going to Hawaii. And as we were talking about the four sh- before, unbelievable that this is our first show with a guest from Hawaii. I kind of find that hard to believe. We've done 200 shows. That's right. 200 shows into ASPN, it is high time that we... We're late. We have someone on to talk to us about what's going on out in the Hawaiian Islands, and we have the perfect guest today, Jessica Else, a writer with the Garden Island newspaper, founded in 1901. This is an institution on the Garden Island. The Garden Island, folks, is the island of Kauai. Uh, one of the older islands in the chain, but we're going to learn all about this. Uh, she's the environmental reporter. Uh, we have run several uh, stories from the Garden Island that Jessica has written on Coastal News Today. So you all have experienced her great work on uh, the website, but this is this is a level up. We get to have a conversation about what, what she's working on. We're going to talk about the... Uh, Okay, what's the name of the, the stream? Wipaw stream? The Waipaw Stream Restoration Project. We ran a story on that several months ago. Uh, we're also going to talk about trends. So lots to get look forward to. But before we do, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. Well, on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today, we want to thank our main sponsor these days, the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway Association and their 20th annual meeting coming up. November 21st and 22nd in Savannah, Georgia. We're going to be there podcasting from the conference. It's all about the economy and the maintenance of this incredible waterway. It's all about that live podcast coverage. That's a good coverage. And this is the waterway that goes back to the founding of the country. That's right. At the time of the Constitution and has been a critical part of the economy of the Atlantic Shore. But anyway, AIWA National Conference 20th Annual, November 21st and 22nd in Savannah, Georgia, you can register still inter, uh, it's Atlantic Intracoastal dot org dot org Atlanta Intracoastal it's I-N-T-R-A Intracoastal dot org. So thanks a lot to Brad Pickle and AIWA for sponsoring us on uh, ASPN. All right, Jessica Else, great to have you on the program today. Uh, let's start out as we usually do and learn a little bit more about you. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the audience and tell us where you're from and how you became interested in uh, environmental reporting and uh, coastal issues? Well, aloha, Peter and Tyler. Uh, first off, thank you uh, for having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting about these things. I am from the Northwest originally. I was born in Alaska, and uh, my parents were a little bit of dreamers, travelers, and we were in Montana, Oregon, Idaho, and the wild country. And um, I went to school for journalism, came to Kauai in 2015 uh, because I was looking for a change and also wanted to focus a little bit more on the environment and uh, thought that this would be a good spot. funny story i made the decision and found the job opening online for the garden island newspaper the same day wow so yeah it just seemed to fall into place and uh three weeks after i made the decision to come out here i uh was here and it was my first time to the island of Kauai, uh, my second time to the state of hawaii and i'd been on maui uh several years prior to that and so it was really a, a just thrown in all immersive experience for me uh this is a very small paper so it's it's all hands on deck and you get to cross beats pretty often and i did end up finding myself in that environmental beat 
pretty quickly after I moved here and um, the learning curve was pretty steep and I still have a lot left to learn, but I've been here for about four and a half years and um, still, still always amazed at the, the different systems and ecosystems that are at yeah. play out on this island. It's uh, extraordinary. So many microcosms. It's fascinating. Our, our most yeah, coastal, our, our most coastal of states. The most, you know, the thing that is probably if when people think of coastal America, Hawaii, it got to be at the top list. Florida, sure, it's an island state. Jersey, yeah, I mean, yeah it's got. A, 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 Rhode a, Island a, tries to be an island state, an but island. it's not an island. Not so, an island. Uh, so, that, well, but, what but, do they say? One hundred and thirteen <laughs> miles of coastline on Kauai, and I think sixty-three of them, last count, were accessible. Wow! So, wow! Remote. Quite a bit to work with out here. Well, let's. I would love to learn more. I actually would like to know more about the Garden Island newspaper uh, on the mm-hmm. island. Um, tell us about these. I love local press. Of course, we rely on, on, on your writing and your coverage on Coastal News today when we aggregate news. We're always looking for great writers. And, and so we've, it's been a real treat for us to follow this issue uh, in the Garden Island newspaper. But tell us about oh, this you. thing. When, when when did it start? How big is the staff? What's the circulation? What's it like working there? Oh, it's a pretty small staff. There's, oh, right now, four writers. Um, and then we have a you know small staff of um, copy desk folks and some, some advertising folks that we all work together, one little building out here. Uh, and we're the only print daily publication on the island and so we work together with um, Kong Radio which is the the one of the main radio stations out here and get the news out uh, but it's dynamic every single day is different and we we still cross beats quite often so it's a it's a tight-knit staff that's working together what a cool uh, job yeah. daily stories it's yeah. a dream job Jessica you've, yeah. you've landed a dream damn job which it, I can. It really I, is. I say that it's a pretty sweet gig. I, I think it is, and uh, you know, I'm mostly accustomed to your writing because of the environmental beat that you do, and it's crossover to what we are interested in. But um, I'm the the quality is amazing, and you guys are really in the community, and that's what we're looking for, of course, Peter. When we're looking for the news, is is getting that local flavor uh, because. Yeah. Oftentimes when it comes to coastal projects, environmental projects, the local politics, the local culture, uh, <clears throat> all weigh in on what actually ends up happening, the decisions that are made. Or should. Or should happen. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah. that's all very interesting. You know, I think we should actually go another step here. So we have the Garden Island newspaper. It's on the Garden Island, uh, which is a.k.a. Yeah. Kauai. Uh Tell us about Kauai. Uh, I, I do know that it's the, I believe it is the westernmost island in the chain. Uh, yes. But tell us, tell our audience about Kauai. I'm sure a lot of us haven't been there. Well, it is uh, the oldest inhabited of the islands. And like you said, it is the westmost part of the chain. I would say that it's maybe one of the more rural areas. So out here, there's a lot of ag small neighborhoods the the community still you know everybody knows their neighbor um there's a term out here called pa- uh, pauhana and huh. pauhana means that time right after you finish work when you and your friends hang out 
throw a couple beers back. It's called happy talk hour about over the here. Day, unwind. <laughs> yeah, happy hour. It's it's Pauhana out here and it's really a culture. Um, where, really? where you get together with your neighbors and you're spending time, you're grilling with your family. I love that. Those are a lot of the things that characterize Kauai versus you know, other islands where maybe there's more of a nightlife or or those types of elements. Kauai is really, uh, really family-based, um, which is one thing I love about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it's, uh, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I don't mean to interrupt, but the paper is in, or, you know, the main office is in Lahui, which I imagine is the largest city. Is that right? I, I would think yes. I, I don't know the exact stats on that, but it it's up there. Um, it's more of the. Uh, I would say you know it's where the airport is. A lot of the commerce happens here. Um, it's a little bit of a transportation hub. And then as you move out, there's different characteristics for the different towns around the island. Uh, Poipu and and Koloa maybe are about the same size. Um, they have a few more resorts and things like that restaurants, shopping, and then uh, you move out. So let me, a couple of quick questions. If you don't mind, if you tell us uh, where you were in your undergraduate years and either coming from Alaska, I don't know if you came directly from Alaska or Washington or what part of the Pacific Northwest, but how were you received on the island? What, what, how, how did the local community react when, uh, when you showed up? It's always a a little bit of a, a time to break in, I think, you know, any small community, if you imagine that small town um, where everybody's super tight knit and the newcomers, the people are highly curious. Right. And it takes a little while to earn trust and to break in. Once you do, it's well, it's been phenomenal working here ever since my first day. But um, on, on such a small island, I was definitely I felt a little more in the spotlight or a little more known as the new reporter on the island when I first got here. Okay. I can imagine. <laughs> Everybody knew. Yeah. Um, my background, you know, I'm, I'm from a lot of small towns and grew up, a, like I said, a little bit more in the wild country. And so I was prepared for that and understood the dynamic. So I think I fit in pretty well um, because of that past and that history. Uh, yeah, because I was in one of the towns, the towns that I graduated high school in was about 5,000. And, and so... I kind of had an understanding of that as it was, but it is an interesting dynamic with the local folks that live here and the visitor industry that does so much for the economy. And, um, you know, conversely, we have this over tourism um, phrase that's popped up in the last few years where even the Kauai Visitors Bureau is saying, hey, we're, we're starting to reach capacity on visitors and maybe need to restructure in order to maintain this rural environment that we're wanting to keep on Kauai. Well, it is, you know, known as the Garden Island. And, you know, I I was a part of that tourism uh, industry when I was a kid. My family and I uh, took, I think, two separate trips out to uh, Poipu. On oh, the, yes. <clears throat> Poipu, I believe, is on the, what is that, the southern, the southern tip, I guess, of the island. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, I just remember it being, Jessica, just so damn beautiful. And um, I remember that kind of Grand Canyon feature uh, driving around. You know, it's not terribly large. So here's here's kind of a follow-up question. In your in your duty as as the environmental reporter, are you you're probably driving all over the the island ice, I would imagine. Yes, I am. It's one of the best things about this job is they have me 
you know, all over the place. I was able to, I would say one of the highlights was reporting recently reporting on uh, the 2018 floods in Haena, uh, Wainiha, Hanalei up on the North shore. Um, that was a, just seeing the devastation was heartbreaking and watching the rebuilding was, is what's fascinating. And I was able to be out there before any of the public was allowed to be out there and did some reporting and saw firsthand how the ecosystem was coming back after some of these restoration projects that were going on. And it's, just seeing that and then you drive out to the the canyon on the west side and you know the dry country where there's cactuses and um i think there's scorpions out there and yeah and such a different such a difference yeah yeah but i'm a i'm able to get around all the time yeah they have me driving all over the island it's it's very cool and the other thing that i remember from a kid going out there and i just remember like my mom and dad talking about this uh is that uh the island, like the brand, the tourism brand of Kauai was that it was more natural, fewer resorts, um, yeah. kind, of, kind of a different, you know, if it's not uh, Waikiki, you know, it is like there, there was definitely a distinct tourism brand to Kauai, which is why we went there. We wanted to, you know, have yeah. more of a, a family uh, time away from a whole bunch of other tourists and we did uh yeah. it was it was absolutely beautiful it's also i believe the wettest spot on earth is that right the top of the the top of the mountain it has been holding that uh that accolade for many years and i i don't remember if um i think somebody has challenged that in the last couple oh, wow. of years that climate change within will the world hit you. but yeah yeah but uh, it's been holding that I, I can't remember if it's 400 and something inches that they get on top of the mountain why ale ale yeah. every year but it is raining constantly up there. I can attest to that or nearly constantly. Like I, I can see that from my house, um, that mountain. And it is always, always seems to be raining. Well, uh, you, you have a, an amazing job. You work on an amazing island. And uh, we wanted to talk with you a, a little bit about some of the stories you've been following, specifically this Waipa Stream Restoration Project. Uh, why don't you just start from the top and tell us about uh, the stream itself and what the area is like and, and what this project is. Well, sure. Yeah, Waipaw is up on the North Shore, uh, a little bit past Hanalei, as you're driving around that one highway that connects all of the towns on um, Kauai. It's Kuhio Highway. So you get to the top and you hit Waipaw and it, the Waipa itself is an ahupua'a, which is like an ancient uh, system of watershed management that was based on natural systems and land divisions. So if you picture Kauai as a pizza, and that center of the pizza is the mountains, and the outside edge is the ocean, and then you have all the little pizza slices, those are the different ahupua'as on Kauai. And it, it's... um. Hawaii-wide that they they had this system of land management. And so usually it was managed from the mountains to the ocean. And, you know, they had the the mountains had the trees for their canoes and house building. And then they did agriculture and um, wetlands in the the sort of lower lying or central areas. And then down at the coast, they had their fish ponds and their... uh, you know, all of the, the seafood. 
areas, the reef restoration and everything, and they cared for it all as one unit. And the Waipaw stream goes down the middle of the, the Waipaw watershed, essentially. And um, um, it's about 1,600 you, acres. Okay, let me ask you, how many pizza slices does the river... Oh, uh, I mean, let's how, see. Well, the, the island itself, that, that river is in one pizza slice. Okay, that's what I want to know. Yeah. And then the island itself, I don't know exactly how many. Um, every time I count them, it seems like another one pops up that I didn't know about. <laughs> and these are ancient? These are like, these are... Uh, features yeah, they, that were engineered by the like uh, do you call them uh, native hawaiians or ancient hawaiians like what's the yeah the native hawaiians the um the ancient hawaiians that were here you know the polynesians that had come over with their canoe plants and and all of those they discovered the island they're one of the groups that discovered the islands they, and like, they started populating it, it. yep they peopled it and then as time went on uh, these systems were created in order. It was it's basically watershed management. Yeah, and so they just took the islands and kind of whoever lived in that ahu pua'a or watershed took care of those resources, and then lived off of those resources as well. Wow. So, we're so spending... if you lived in the Waipa watershed, you would go to kind of the the reefs and the water within that to get your dinner if you were fishing for it, et cetera. So uh, I'm very interested in this. Thank you very much for this kind of historical background and understanding Definitely. of this. Um, would, it, would it be a, a village or a community or a family? What was, you know, on a slice, you're talking about the, you know, from the sea uh, would, to the mountaintop. What, would, what was t the typical understanding of that? Uh, my understanding is I would say that it was more of a community village scenario, right. multiple families living together. Um, and a little bit more concentrated and then going to forage up in the mountains for the things they needed and, um, you know, right. farming the, the taro patches and the lo'i, which is the Hawaiian word, uh, for those taro patches. Okay. Yeah. Lo'i. Um, so they did all of the, the farming and everything there and then, you know, went to the sea. So I, I, yeah, uh, more of, um, more community based. Right, so we've been spending yeah, so. um, as a society. I don't know. We're building universities. You got to get a degree in this, and we're all what we're trying to do is figure out how to do that. That's right. And they did yeah. that before we ever decided to do that. And, yeah. You know, this yeah. is like you know we need to be able to manage this as a yeah. system and a watershed. And I mean, they were it's just fascinating. Yeah, Governor DeSantis of Florida system. has got to <laughs> go there and check it out. This is how yeah. you do it. Right. Yeah. Well, the and interconnectivity. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, go doing ahead. Doing it, which is the fascinating thing about it. They they've already, you know, up in the upper lands where all the trees were, uh fires, deforestation, human mm. contact, invasive species have eliminated a lot of the native plants. But in the last 2 years, they've planted I think it's 2000 native trees to repropagate up there. And then they're restoring the wetlands in the low country, which is providing filter a filtration system right for the water as it's coming right. down the watershed and they're integrating the taro patches and other food crops in with this system and then they're using that to sell at a farmer's market and to teach community members how to make poi which is huh. that traditional use for kalo or taro right and uh so it's all this 
focus on sustainability, connecting the community to their roots and teaching people how to to farm in that sustainable method that you know doesn't require as many pesticides chemicals um changing the land as much and working like with the features of the land that are already existent it it sounds idyllic to me it sounds very cool um i want to ask about this the organization that uh is undertaking this and um who are some of the individuals that are uh leading this effort yeah the um the white pot foundation is sort of the main umbrella organization that's that's um undertaking this uh there's a lot of really there's a lot of key players involved in the white pot foundation uh stacy sprout beck is one of the the people that comes to my mind right away and she's she's one of the organizers the main spearheaders of this you see her out in the fields all the time partnering with different school organizations that come out to learn classes uh, she's always or most times she's at the um the community poi pounding or she's helping out and uh so like she's one of the movers and shakers and her family has ties to uh, that land i believe and so she has uh she's propagating sort of her own history and heritage as well and all of that fantastic and you've got uh you've got one of the hydrologists the the hydrologist that's leading the stream restoration project his name's matt rosner he's working with a grant from the department of health out here Hmm. and uh he's the one that has been spearheading a lot of the work that's bringing those fish back to the waipaw stream and the seaweed back um cleaning up the water a lot. His main project is removing a species called a how bush, H-A-U. And that's an invasive brush that has sort of choked out the river. It grows super fast, um, drops lots of leaves, and will block up the rivers, streams, etc. It's all over the island. And so he's been, I think he's about three quarters of the way done with cleaning out that stream. Okay, let me let me and, uh, um, yeah. let me let me interject a question here because uh, obviously when it is a restoration project and the organization is pulling together and uh, it sounds like a very comprehensive approach. Tell us a little bit about how the condition uh, came to need restoration. What's the community's understanding of that process? How far does it go back? Is there somebody that is sort of blamed for that? I hate to put it in that term, but was it a particular practice or was it just general decline? I mean, what's the story behind the need for it? Uh, the need for restoration. Yes. I think there's multiple factors at play. I think invasive species, at least specifically in that area, um, has a lot to do with it. Uh, the introduction of albizia trees, um, the the list goes on and on of the different invasive species that come in. And because Kauai, well, all of Hawaii is, is such a prime growing environment for almost anything. Anything that comes over here takes off What's at the, extraordinary rate. When you're talking about the invasives here, are these were these uh, uh, um, intentionally introduced for financial reasons because they were harvestable or something? Or was this accidental? I guess maybe both? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Yep. Yeah definitely a mixed bag depending upon what species you're talking about um 
I know the ones that come up to my mind. Sylvania is a an invasive species that's been tar- er, been found in some of the rivers out here, and that was somebody brought it over for their aquarium. It looked great. Then they, I believe, got rid of the aquarium and just tossed the the Sylvania plant in the water. And next thing you know, it's taking over the entire stream. One of the so, oh, go ahead. A, I'm sorry. It's a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah, and you know. Uh, on the story when you, when you wrote this uh, story, which you know it's been I, I believe uh, several months since since the story yeah. went, but um, you know there were some some photographs, and I would encourage our our listeners just Google it up. The uh, Waipa Stream Restoration Project. There's a the organization that's doing it has a website, and uh, you you'll probably find Jessica's articles too. Uh, and it's just yep, interesting yep. to look at. But one of the things that you reported wait, wait, wait. on... How do you spell YPOF? I'm going to tell them that you should Google it. I wouldn't even know. Is it... Jessica, how's it Jessica, spelled? Jessica, how, how do you Google? W-A-I-P-A. YPOF. Okay. W-A-I-P-A. That's doable. And That's the, uh, doable. Yeah, and the name of the organization, the YPOF Foundation. Okay. The YPOF Foundation. So go check those guys out. One of the yeah, things you yeah, wrote about was about work. this little fish that I guess uh, its life cycle involves it going out, you know, in the ocean, in the, in the uh, kind of shallow areas there around the island, and then going up the, the stream. Is that correct? Uh, and that it's, yeah. it's, it has returned to this, uh, to the Waipaw stream uh, since the restoration. Tell us about that story. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's basically the story. You know, the fish, it's a native fish to, to Kauai. Um, I believe I'm, I'm not sure if it's statewide or if it's it's just a koi endemic species, um, but they're known for coming back up into the rivers to reproduce, and uh, they eat the limu, the seaweed. Uh, that's the the newest theory. I believe I was talking with Matt about it, and he said that clearing the how bush has uh, introduced light, more sunlight into the rivers which is helping those species that these fish feed on come back and so the fish are coming back and then of course that's a food source for um for the guys that live in the ahu pua and the ahu pua is the it's the pizza slice that's the, the pizza, pizza slice. okay thank yeah, you it's the watershed <laughs> and you know in that area yeah. there aren't any uh towns within the waipa ahu pua'a there's the the Waipa Foundation has a headquarters where they sort of run all of their activities. They've got a little community center, um, an emu, which is that underground fire pit that you can cook the the Kalua pig and all mm. those good things that we remember from Kauai and Hawaii. Yeah, um, the they luau have a community experience. one. Yes, oh, you can cool. hold community luau's. Wow, out there and. So the population centers are a little bit further north and a little bit further south than Waipa itself. Um, but there are families that live all through there, and uh, they like to gather right up in that Ahupua'a. Wow. And I mean, they're holding invasive species dinners, which is one of my favorite things they've been doing over the last couple of years, where they send community members out into the island to gather edible invasive species, Perfect. like the pigs... Mm-hmm. And tilapia, java plums, etc. And then they throw a dinner, and the proceeds benefit the Waipa Foundation. 
Fantastic. So you've mentioned a couple of restoration techniques here, the removal of the invasive species, particularly this 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 one kind of bush that grows prolifically and drops leaves and shades the water and wrecks the food supply, all that kind of cool stuff. The ha. The right? ha. And then the ha bush. Is that what it's called? Ha? Huh? How? How bush. How bush. We're trying, yeah. Jessica. And, and, and then. <laughs> you guys are doing great. With a, what other techniques? So removal of invasives, and uh, are they doing? Are they doing anything in the water hydrology? I guess reforestation. Tell us more about restoration techniques that they're trying to employ. Yeah, they are doing a lot more with um, with the hydrology itself. Really, the the main focus is getting that how bush out of the river and getting the the stream. Excuse me, getting the stream unclogged. Okay. But also, in order to prevent that from taking back over right they, they're taking up this space with native plants and building the beginnings of a food forest out there so they've got wow. breadfruit and um oh what are some of the other things avocados papaya um mangoes uh pra- I, I can't remember if they have a mango tree but i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> they definitely should yeah <laughs> um yeah you know the coconuts Right. Uh, what were some of the other canoe plants? They definitely have taro growing out there. So they're trying to build that, you know, based on the permaculture ideas and that that same sort of sustainable ecosystem yeah. based form of agriculture. So they're planting those uh, those plants, which will take up space. Okay. Uh, so the invasives can't you know get another another foothold and uh yeah they're also they're pretty heavily watching for those invasives to keep them at bay you know one of the things that i i'm thinking about as as we learn about this is um this balance that all coastal managers are trying to strike between uh the needs of the community uh, be they uh, industrial, uh, to- commercial, tourism, uh, just residential housing people, uh, agricultural, furnishing food. And what really impresses me about this uh, YPA stream and the, the whole pizza slice uh, philosophy is mm-hmm. that um, there, every, there's this, first of all, the whole concept is like the water is going to flow from the top of the mountain down. We're going to manage how it flows. So there's this like initial interconnectivity of the entire land space to the yeah. water. Yeah. Which I think is extremely elevated. You know, most of the most of our watershed management doesn't work that way. It goes from one, you know, artificially drawn border, basically, yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. to to something else. I mean, this is, I think, much more reflective of the physics of what's happening on the island. But I think it's all, I mean, yeah. th- these compromises are happening. I mean, a food forest, uh, the, the space is designed to uh, be habitable and produce food in a way that's mm-hmm. natural and does not degrade what's downstream of it. In fact, it's designed to yep. improve that area for so that you can harvest fish in a sustainable way further down. And yeah. man, I think that there's there's a lot to, to take away from that philosophy and the, the fact that it's Sounds being done. Cool. It's being done. It sounds really good. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's amazing to watch. And it, it, ha- it definitely, like, the fish are coming back. Uh, we're getting positive, lots of positive signs that this is working. 
And uh, I know that there's still a little bit more to do. They're not done over at YPA. They have um, they have more plans. They're working on the fish pond, which is a whole nother piece, a little bit closer to the coastal area, uh, where the traditional Ahupua'a system watershed management practices used these ponds where they cultivated fish so they didn't have to go out and work as hard to find their food every day. And so a lot of these are, a lot of these, it's just like a refrigerator for fish kind of, you know, they're alive in there and and waiting and they're right by the river mouths. And they're still um, not in Waipa, but in a different area near Lahui by the Hula'ia River, they're still uncovering fish ponds that have been overtaken by this howbush. Wow. Um, and they're trying to, a different organization completely is working on, um, on doing restoration over there. So there's little pockets all the way around Kauai where they're trying to bring back this Ahupua'a system of land management. It, it's 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 a fascinating um yeah, that's a that's really neat. you know the rest of i i think that hawaii is is unique hawaii uh my understanding was the last uh part of earth uh you know the newest well no not the newest it was the 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 last part to be peopled you know like oh to be people and i you know i'm yeah. i'm sure that excludes like antarctica or whatever but you know the idea is that uh, there were people basically all over the rest of the planet and it took more time for yeah. for the Polynesians to arrive in Hawaii because it's way the hell out there. It's they isolated. Had, yeah, it's we're isolated. super remote out here. Yeah. So the, just, no, I mean, no airplanes back then. No airplanes no back then. GPS. It yeah. was, you had to be, you had to be yeah. very skilled. So it's, it's interesting yes. that the, uh, and the, it seems that these traditions of, of management are, come out of the native tradition um and, that's accurate yeah and that that is the but and that this seems to be at least in this example i mean obviously we are running stories about the the more conventional gray infrastructure that they're looking at in honolulu right, right now right. so yeah it's a mixed bag definitely like yeah. it's all happening right so it's not it's not as though this is the uh the official state stance on adaptation no. or anything but I do think that there is a uh, a bit of an advantage that Hawaii and Hawaiians have in that they a have this uh, history and culture there, yeah. and also it's um, you know when you talk about say you know the Delaware you know peninsula there in Maryland the Eastern Shore that region it's it would be harder. To go back in time and find a land management system, I think. Yeah, no, you're. I think you you're know what right. I mean, like I mean th- this is this yeah. exists. It's it's almost yeah. a little. Well, they was, can find these remnants yeah. of these fishing ponds. I mean, yeah. what a cool story! So c- keep telling us more about how is it. What is the community's? I would imagine it's a very positive. Uh, it, it is received very positively, but as a steely-eyed reporter. And at which you are at, at the Garden Island Press newspaper, uh, is it is it well managed? And it and and what is the what is the relationship between the community? How's the funding for this done? Is it sounds really like it's gone quite well? I would say right now there's a lot of pockets of projects, um, different nonprofits that are working. And in some ways, they could connect a lot better than they are right now. 
and you know they're starting to form those connections um but it's it's definitely specific pockets of the island and, and i know that it definitely um it extends to other islands as well where people are really focused on their place and um where where they're at right now what they can do in their ahupua'a and so it's it's very uh, place based is a is a word that people throw around a lot where you know you're that in your zone sense. and and it's a little bit siloed so i think that there's definitely opportunity for people to start working together a little more and spread this message even further um in- the community itself is so supportive a lot of the guys out here are farmers they're wanting to um you know wanting to get better return on their crops and have to spend less money on, you know, things like invasive species removal and seeing how they can integrate these kind of practices and what they're doing and then selling at local farmers markets, which are huge out here. It's definitely a win for everybody. I, I don't hear very much negative chatter about it. That is really great. So we've got this one watershed, Ahu Puaha. Mm-hmm. Am I close? Yeah, that's a yep. You did it. Close. And how many others yeah, are yeah. there on uh, on the island? And is there restress restra- You kind of talked about the pockets of this thing, but is this approach being applied in other watersheds? Th- that, as you said, this is about being your sense of place and being place based approaches on the other side of the mountain. Anybody over there doing anything? Yeah, yeah. There definitely. There's as far as I know, in most of the Ahupua'as. Uh, there is some spark of this happening. Um, there's some sort of restoration going on, whether it's, you know, the bogs and the wetlands that are up in the um, uh, the Alakai Swamp and some of the more highland wetlands and bogs that have endemic species and, and things like that. They're, they cross various ahupua'as, um, but there con- there's um, organizations like the Nature Conservancy that's targeting one of the bogs fencing it off from invasive pigs and goats and other things uh, and helping replant some native species so that it can continue to be that filtration system um, and like water retention system for the watershed. So there's definitely, yeah, little projects are going on all over the place that target specific aspects of the Ahupua'a management system. Okay, so for the YPA yeah. Stream Restoration Project, uh, it sounds like it's going great. It really, and we we would we will continue to when we see them to put your your coverage, uh, you know, excerpts on the website that people that will take people to your to your newspaper website to read read what you're up to. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah, we're gonna keep a definitely keep it's an, a, it's a finger a great, on that pulse. Yeah, and, and and you know, it's not it's relevant really to Florida and and. And, and river systems that are all around the United yeah. States and efforts to, you know, the, the Chesapeake Bay restoration strategy is a, is a watershed-based strategy completely. I mean, it's a nutrient management yeah. that extends way inland. This, not, this is not uh, the techniques and the, especially the community commitments all matter, whether they're in Hawaii or in Maryland or in Virginia or whatever, Florida. Uh. But let, let's take a step back. You've been there about four and a half. I think you said you got there in 2015. And uh, 2015, yeah. 2015, and been the environmental reporter uh, for that. I guess the duration. Um, mm-hmm. 
go up to 30,000 feet and tell us about the island, its environmental condition, and some of the other issues that the community is contending with in its environmental health. I mean, what? give us a broader understanding. All right. Well, yeah, let's, let's pull back the picture just a little bit. Um, where shall I start? Well, Kauai, we know we've got the mountains, sea cliffs, uh, the Nepali is stunning. Everybody, everybody loves Kauai because there's really a shoreline for everybody. We can start there at shorelines. Yeah, let's start um, there. Yeah, you guys are shoreline based over here. That's right. That's our focus. The American yeah. Shoreline Podcast <laughs> Wait, I think Network. she said yeah. 575 miles and only 63 accessible something. I can't remember the specifics. That was an amazing... 113 miles is what my uh, calculations have shown, and then 63 of them approximately accessible. So, and you, it, it's a lot. It's a mixed bag, definitely for the beaches. You can get kind of lost in whatever paradise you choose, whether yeah. it's uh, like the mountain adventures, etc., the nice beaches, and then you've got your endangered and, and endemic plants and animals, like the um, monk seals, endangered seabirds. Uh, I, my personal favorite is this little carnivorous sundew plant, Ooh, but huh. it's endemic to Kauai. It's called the Mikinalo plant. It's a uh, bright green with these sort of pink tentacles that excrete this glue that traps and then digests insects. And it's found only in the Alakai swamp. So wow. my, or the, the bogs, highland bogs of Kauai. So my point is that there's a lot of sensitive, um, ecosystems, animals, plants, and the interplay between them is sensitive. So you have all of these elements and, uh, you know, things like that are getting thrown off. That's why we have to have these restoration projects. So that's that piece of it. Okay. Then we also have shoreline erosion. They're talking about sea level rise reaching what was the prediction? 3.2 feet by the end of the century of yeah. sea level rise. Yeah, there's a wide range. That and, sounds about uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hawaii developed the state uh, in partnership with a few other organizations, developed this online sea level rise viewer that predicts what's going to happen once we reach that 3.2 and in between. So you can actually go online and yeah. move the little um, device that says, you know, 1.1 level of. Right. Or feet of sea level rise, et cetera, and see what happens. And they're showing you know, the potential of even at a foot of sea level rise, Kuhio Highway being underwater at some points. So the county's really looking at, and they, they have um, vulnerability assessments out with the, col- the UH College, uh, University of Hawaii. Right. Just, uh, you know, looking at what is going to be affected, what's going to be underwater. Obviously, parts of the highway businesses are going to be within the next at least century, potentially sooner. And what are the um, mitigations, the steps we need to take now? So I think it's kind of neat That's... that they're they're doing these little touch bases with the community, asking them their input on it and their insight on it. It's part of a overall strategy. What a um, great beat! So that's really that's really interesting to me because they they need to know from the people that have lived there for a really long time what's going to happen. Of course, what happens when it floods? You know, I mean, one of the yeah. it, it truly is it's such a microcosm, but not too small here, uh, of how a community is going to encounter and face climate change. And 
and it, which yeah. I think invasive is some of the invasive species are driven partly by climate change and conditions. But make the connection. What a what an amazing thing to report on. I mean, if you think about this over the next ten years, um, to be able to document that at a local paper still in America, we lose. We lose, I don't know how many newspapers a year, hundreds, if not thousands yeah. of newspapers close in America. And, and very thankful it, this one's clinging on. Yeah, so. Independent press yeah. is really yeah. a unique thing. And to have people still reporting, uh, tell, I mean, your editor must understand this quite well. Um, what is your relationship with, with the editor as you look down the road and say, you know what, one of the things the Garden Island News should do is uh, tell the story of this island and this transformation we're about to go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's on board 100%. And uh, he, uh, I, I've been reporting on it long enough now that he really lets me pick and choose what I want to write and what I want to report on. Um, definitely gives me the reins to go out and explore on my own and try to find these, you know, these great stories of how we're not only looking to the past to try to develop something sustainable now, but also looking to the future in order to keep something sustainable for the future. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of other things going on on the island that he has to pay attention to as well. So he really gives me the reins and lets me, he relies on me a lot to be able to to tell that story, which I appreciate. Um, Gives me that freedom, definitely. But he keeps his finger on the pulse of a lot of things. Sure. And and yeah. it's it's evident in your uh, work uh, that he that he does that, and you know I gotta say you know it it makes sense that there would be that focus uh, because uh, you, you're on an island and uh, sustainability is uh, yes. pretty essential. It's uh, super important. We have nowhere to go. That's right. You're. I like, mean, this is we have to we have to preserve what we have on this island, and uh, you know I even feel blessed to be able to say the word we and to be included in this type of a yeah um, well you've definitely you've definitely earned it you've definitely earned it as a uh as a resident since 2015 uh i know that oh you know quite a few people every year uh attempt to move to hawaii and they they can't get over the island nature of it um what do they call that island fever is that right yes they do call that island fever. did you did you it, suffer at all it. from island fever in your move i do i do occasionally but when that happens i get off the island go say hi to the folks or um usually that's what i do is go see family but it's it's definitely a it's an aspect to it especially i don't know for me growing up exploring so much and having those wide open spaces it was a huge change uh coming to Kauai where it is a little bit, it's it's smaller, you only have certain amount of space that you can roam. And so we island hop a lot, jump over to Oahu or for shopping a lot of times or to um, the big island to go check out the national parks out there. People are jumping around all the time and I think that is a direct result of island fever. <laughs> Well, it's it is amazing and it really. I have I've, I was there a few times uh, as as a kid when my father was stationed in Clark Air Force Air Force Base in the Philippines, and we okay. we transited okay. from California to the Philippines and w- refueling stops. You know, back in the day, 
the right. 707. You had to stop in Hawaii. That's right. Spent, those older airplanes didn't, didn't have get, the range. Could, didn't have the range. So we spent uh, you know a few weeks there. I always loved it when we went back and forth because we got to stop in Hawaii. But but let's talk about visitorship and tourism and yeah. you know some of the things that we're seeing on Coastal News today because we we cover this sector and it, it seems very common around the world. And we're, you know, we're curating stories. We're sort of picking what we're interested in. But but yeah. because of the economics of the planet, that there are people who are wealthy enough to move around more, that you can fly from L.A. to Honolulu for about 250 bucks round trip. It used to be much more exotic, much more remote now. Hell, you can go to Antarctica. 250 bucks round trip is a darn good deal. Is that a good deal? Is it more than that? (laughs) It's more than that, man. I see where you're going. But it's I take your point. What we're talking about is it used to be sort of like a a really selective group of people would be jetting off to Hawaii in 1958. Right. You know, now millions. and Frank Sinatra. Sure. And that comes in on the on the seaplane, gets off on the little (laughs) canoe, the Polynesian canoe, gets the lay right there on Waikiki. Hemingway Hemingway down in, you know, in in Key West. Yeah. It was an exotic location. It yeah. was not, that was part of the appeal, was it the remoteness. Yeah. And of course, nowadays with cruise ships, you can dump 3,000 people into Petersburg, Alaska, you know, a town yeah. of, like, you know, 500 people. And in one day, 3,000 people can get off a boat all summer long. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I want to I want to yeah, yeah. know what your thoughts are on that in Hawaii and especially uh, the island of Kauai yeah, because it's is, the gar- yeah. it is the Garden Island yeah. and yeah. you know going back to my childhood it, part of its brand was that it wasn't overrun by tourists so yeah t- talk to us about that yeah well we're seeing the effects definitely I would say from firsthand experience we're definitely seeing the effects of that. A shift in the type of travelers and the availability of travel, and there's a lot of there's a lot of different impacts. You know, we got um, traffic, which can be arguably uh, contributed to by the residents and the visitors. But uh, you know, everybody, I've, I've been reading a few trends. Some of the trends out here, um, according to this uh, plan that Kauai came up with, and they updated in 2018, and it's the Quiet Tourism Plan 2019 to 2021. So it's citing all a lot of these um, impacts, and uh, you know, one of them that they're they're talking about is this change from people coming in and staying at hotels and taking tour buses to and from places. Right. They're staying at more of a like Airbnb style places mm-hmm. um getting their own cars going on their own adventures without the guides as much right. so you end and up so that is losing part of one of the reasons you want visitors is to is to support local the local economy and local jobs so yeah. if you need hotels and you need people to work at the hotels and work at the restaurants yeah. and run the tours and then suddenly this peer-to-peer economy developing, and it's really powerful all around the American shoreline. It's a huge deal. Yeah, yeah this is a trend we're following we, everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere, and it changes the economics yeah. of the communities. It changes the development style, uh, like out on the Outer Banks of North Carolina where they're building 10,000 square foot houses with you know 12 rooms because you can Airbnb that thing for 10 grand yeah. a week. I mean, it just it's driven the design of structures. It's changed the damn beachfront. Yeah. 
everything. Yeah. Yep. The and characteristic s- of the community is like, that's one big thing that people out here are super worried about because, you know, a, a lot of um, a lot of people, especially longtime residents here, compare what's going on now to Hurricane Aniki, which Ooh. happened in '92, really? I believe. Really. And it's a hurricane that came right over the top of Kauai and parked and just stripped the island. And it was a really long recovery process. And a lot of people left the island at that point. I don't even know the the exact numbers, but the population went down. Uh, Some of those transient folks left and the rebuilding started. Hmm. And it is... You know the character they're wanting to preserve that character that so uh, talk know about, your neighbors okay so character. let's talk about that that because i think that is incredibly important and insightful that people see this uh, it, the truth of this because it, it's it's true what you're saying is i believe is quite correct um mm-hmm. that the, that the composition of the communities changes this transientness and mm-hmm. how property is who's across the street is yeah. that sort of it's, explicitly discussed in the community? Are people aware of it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. In fact, the some of the phrases or conversations that I have are, you know, people, auntie at the grocery store, I run into her and she's saying, you know, I don't know my neighbors. What if a Niki happens again or another hurricane happens again? And I, I don't know who lives across the street from me. And before we would have had an action plan, we would have been working together. And I don't know if that's the case because I don't know these people. You know, that's kind of the mentality that I hear uh, fairly often around. And um, there's there's lots of plans. And, you know, they don't want to kill the visitor industry completely. No. They want to keep it within those visitor-designated areas and keep those communities, like, their character um, the way that it, that it has been. But the community yeah. itself, the, the chatter that I hear from the people that live here is that this fear of losing that rural residential feel. Because uh, It's scary because the economics are that good. This show is also brought to you by the DHI Group. DHI are the first people you should call when you have a tough challenge to solve in a water environment, be it a river, reservoir, an ocean, a coastline, or within a city or a factory. Their knowledge of water environments is second to none. It represents 50 years of dedicated research and real-life experiences from more than 140 countries. They strive to make their knowledge globally accessible to clients and partners by channeling it through local teams and unique software. You should check them out. We've got advertisements on coastalnewstoday.com. We've been profiling them in the Daily Blast email, but go to dhigroup.com to learn more. I mean, this is what I read about is if you buy a beach house in some remote barrier island around the U.S. shoreline, or not even remote, um, and you have a mortgage of two or three grand a month, which might be which is completely unrealistic for well it depends on where you are depends on where you are you buy maybe buy a house for a couple hundred thousand bucks you know but then but 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 airbnb allows peter peter's peter's picking out some what is this 1953 what what beach what beach community and what airline are you that's not the point the absolute numbers are not the point what i'm talking about is by by not living in the house but renting the house through Airbnb or VRBO, it's too lucrative. It makes no sense for people. I mean, people. Yeah. This is what people are doing, and they're they're well, like, and, hey, I can make some money on it, and and this is my second home, so why not? Yeah, 
And I don't think it's right. necessarily good for the American Toronto. I think there are detrimental impacts to the community. I think about simple stuff like who's registered to vote, how many yeah. people mm-hmm. are resident there, how many, mm-hmm. you know, it changes the tran- the transient population. I'm then using that in a negative way. The, the temporary use of property uh, c- completely changes how it looks, how it's used, what the socioeconomics of the community are, and what the politics yeah. of the community are. And also are. the planning horizon. Yeah. Like if you're a full time mm-hmm. resident, you're born and raised, and you're living, live your life in Hawaii, your understanding of the connection with the land, what it means to you, is going to be dramatically different than even if you move out there to say retire or right. as it's an investment yep. property. And you know, I, I do want to point out, and, and Jessica, I'd love to get some clarity on this, but my dad actually is uh, uh, a, a new Hawaii property owner uh, on the Big All Island right. in Hilo. And um, my understanding is that it's not his primary residence. Um, so he's unable to, by law, the the law, at least on in that county, is that you cannot short-term rent uh, a property like that unless you are a resident, a full-time resident of Hawaii. And my is that the case on the island of Kauai as well? Well, there are there's new laws statewide for what they're calling transient vacation rentals, uh-huh. TVR for short. And that kind of uh, is an umbrella term for all of those types of rentals. And uh, they're bringing the hammer down on a lot of those in unzoned areas. So I think that I haven't thoroughly reviewed the laws of every county to see, you know, what the um, what the differences are in each one. But I know that there's been laws that have passed very recently that are posing some pretty strict fines for for guys that are operating in unzoned areas. Hmm. And uh, I think that second house status has something to do with it in some of those instances okay you know it's it's a battle around the american shoreline in california we've we've done this is a this is a trend we watch a lot so i post stories about the lawsuits the the rules that are being adopted whether it's in california there's been huge fights in california about this it's gone to the court of appeals Mm -hmm. they're battling it out people are arguing over their freedom to use their property as they wish kind of stuff versus the community's interest i've just got to think jessica that in hawaii because of the the especially on this island the cultural depth of the community that the fact that there is an indigenous population there it is even more of an affront in a way that this all gets turned into a disneyland turnkey you know where you just fly in yeah get your rent car and you know go down to the grocery store and get you some beans that you're going to grab you know i mean it just it's no beans? longer yeah. no i'm talking about coffee you know you, uh, yeah, everything right, right, right. is canned you know you go get some canned coffee you get some canned bread you're going to set up your own thing but you're not connected yeah. to the community you might as well be in damn nebraska you know except for the view yeah yeah <laughs> yeah they definitely uh they take it to heart a lot of people do it's a yeah. hot button topic for well, sure well i yeah and Go ahead. Oh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say one of the one of the strategies that's sort of new and um, motivated by the state, the Department of Land and Natural Resources and other uh, Department of Transportation, et cetera. You know, in um, 2018, we had that record breaking flood that smashed a good portion of Cujillo Highway past Wainiha, right where we were talking, right? excuse me, Waipa, right yeah. where we were talking, that watershed, and up into Wainiha areas. And uh, 
the restoration project, I wrote down the numbers. The state spent approximately $80 million rebuilding the highway and around $2 million on these new upgrades to Hyannis State Park, which is where the Kalalau Trailhead starts. That is a uh, world-renowned trail. It's about 11 miles. You hike into this beautiful jungle paradise that is a waterfall you can bathe in. It's just this incredible experience. And um, that, plus all of the other sites along the North Shore right there, we're bringing in 3,000 people a day. That is Up that tiny little road that barely one um, car can fit on. Ugh. And... uh, uh, you know, road improvements are such a mixed bag on the coast, and this is the, the, oh, the big yeah. fight over yeah, the, the, the the mid Karatuk Bridge. I forget the name. It crosses the bay. That get greater vehicle access out onto the outer banks. Right, right, and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the argument, Doctor, or this is Oren Pilkey's point, is who's a development uh, guy who you know works on activist development, activist development policies. Is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, writes about this a lot. And he's very much opposed because of when you do that, like this highway upgrade, the fact that you could go from 3,000 people a day, which is a lot of people on a trailhead, Mm -hmm. I mean, my God, to a greater capacity, you're like, man, is it, can it handle that? Well, and what they're actually doing is some of the upgrades they made to this Hyena State Park is they put in a new parking lot that limits those visitor numbers to 900 a day. That's good. So they're backing so, it down, dialing it back. Yeah, by quite a bit backing it down. They installed a new shuttle system, a little bit of a cost at the gate. So you have to pay. Uh, you have to like register early online to park your car if you're out of state. And you have to get these passes to hike along the Kalalau Trail. So that's really limiting and kind of funneling all of the people that want to hang out there. Well, I'm for um, it. I love and it's that. like the first one that I believe is operating in the state that specific way. So I think the state's really looking at Hyena to see how it goes. It's they opened in June. June, yeah. Huh. We it's interesting because so. uh, you know the famous beach that we've been covering, Tyler, uh, kind of like the, the beach, beach, the beach, beach from the movie, the beach, uh, oh, yeah. Bora Bora. It's in I think is it Bora Bora. It's in, it's in Indonesia. Is in Indonesia. It's in Thailand, Thailand? Indonesia, in, that neck of the woods. Damn it! it I, I'm, yeah. I'm drawing a blank. And it, incredibly Over famous, here, yeah. made famous by the movie, was mm-hmm. inundated with tourism and boats, and and the and the and the reef was was really damaged. There was no infrastructure. There were there were no water, wastewater, anything. So you could imagine a very popular place that people are jetting into. The, the country, they they banned all access for it, and they just extended the ban. I was ban. hearing about that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is the thing that coastal communities, I think, around the country, especially ones like where you are, where there's, we're not talking Waikiki, hell, dump another 3,000 people off the boat in Waikiki, nobody cares, or like more people to go to the bar. Right. But yeah, you, go to, yeah. you go here where it's a natural area, and it makes a difference, and you've got to manage it. Yeah, a huge difference. I mean, that that whole area was closed to the public for, I think, roughly 16 months. And in that amount of time, there were reports. I know we reported it on it, and I think Hawaii News Now did to a couple different agencies about the ecosystem coming back up there, more fish. Um, they have a whole 
what did they call the hyena subsistence-based fishery going on up there, which is a partnership with the community and them managing their own fishery. Hmm. Um, and so that was just even boosted more by this 16-month closure where really it was just the guys that lived up there, the families that lived up there that had access to that. Wow. Um, and then a few workers and, and randoms that were coming through. So yeah, it, you, you saw it in, in just a few months. You could see the difference when you stop that much yeah, uh, activity from happening up there. Well, Let I want to yeah. say this is to, Tyler's been working on a show that I'm really looking forward to. And I don't want to change the subject, Tyler, yeah. but go ahead. But the, but the podcast that you're working on developing on coastal tourism is sort of focused on this particular thing. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're going to be launching a new podcast, uh, soon i'm not i'm gonna i'm gonna not skip out on say, a lot of, right. on a lot of the details but uh, <laughs> we are it's, this is going to be about the uh the actual professional class management class of folks that that work on this very issue of destination management and mm-hmm. um this involves uh trying to strike that balance between it's not just tourism and the number of tourists it's a lot it, it's it's much more complex what what type of tourist is it yep. what are they doing what are their yep. interests where are they going to stay um what in in some communities it might be what it what what sort of carbon footprint are they bringing or what what will the impacts be to the to the local economy and to the environment and all, it's just a it's a more all-encompassing way of understanding tourism yeah. And yeah. uh, we're really excited to launch it. It'll be coming to our audience in the coming, uh, I'm going to say, couple months. You can look forward to this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, de- yeah, it's that'll be a good thing. We, mu- we just have to cover it. Um, Jessica, I, I want to uh, circle back. We, I, I just think we have to just ask you while we have you on, what are some of the, aside from tourism and these restoration projects and mm-hmm. adaptation to sea level rise, what are some other trends that you're seeing, um, environmental trends that you're seeing in the community that people are talking about? I think, um, you know, a big one is that coral bleaching that's coming up, uh, currently happening with the, the marine heat wave that's coming through. And um, I, all eyes are on the ocean in, in a lot of circles because of, uh, you know, I think they've reported there's a, a website you can go on where citizen sciences scientists are reporting where they're observing bleaching and other organizations and independent scientists are getting on board, too. And it's been reported all around the um, every main Hawaiian island so far. So there's a lot of people keeping an eye on that, looking at the research the University of Hawaii and, and its affiliates are doing on you know, genetics and um, different types and of coral and how they react to things like black band and, and all of those type of things. So you have that piece going on. Um, and I think a, another big one that has to do with shorelines and, and, uh, and the marine ecosystems is plastics. Right. Uh, plastic on the beach. You know, we're still seeing, I, I have personally since being here picked up wreckage and, and bits of plastic that came from the Japanese tsunami in 2011. Wow. It's still coming on to the shorelines out here. Incredible. And yeah, uh, yeah there's some, some stuff like I, I found some, it was a, turned out to be a, a sign, like a road marker sign. I thought it wow. for a minute when I found out, I, I saw it and I thought maybe it was a grave marker the way that it was 
but you uh, could trace you could, you could trace it to where it came from yeah yeah i ended up i had a couple of contacts that were able to um trace it back and not the exact location yeah. or, or anything like that but they, they were able to tell me what it was so i was comfortable keeping it yeah. um, what about <laughs> um, you know one of the issues yeah, we hear about we that. Uh, about over here in the in on the mainland um, is the sunscreen discussion. Yes. Um, what's is that a topic in Hawaii? Tell us about that. Definitely, that's that's been a topic that uh, it picked up steam probably last year, the year before, and has been a topic of conversation before that. Um, the oxybenzone ban that we all know about uh, happened, what was that, last year? I think. It, well, and I don't I think we all know about it. On that one. I think but, we should. Oh, we, so, we did so do a pod on this, but uh, <laughs> for, for background, Here, a, explain what's happened Let me there. bring you up to speed. Yeah. Um, Hawaii banned the use of oxybenzone, which is a specific chemical within the, the recipe of most sunscreens that has been shown to impact coral reefs in a negative way. So it's harming the coral reefs. And uh, I think it was in 2018 that the state finally made the move and banned any products that uh, contained oxybenzone. So now when you fly over, um, you'll probably see within some of the state messaging that the, the videos that you get when you jump on the plane and you're headed over, you land in the airport. They talk about reef-safe sunscreens. Really? And those are just sunscreens that don't have oxybenzone in them. And yeah. honestly, almost every major sunscreen company that I've seen is starting to put these out. So yeah. you can, uh, the what is it, the orange bottle that's, got the sport on it i can't remember yeah the that's the brand. uh sunsport um, no is it sunsport yeah. i think you're sunsport. right peter i think copper it's tone, you got sunsport you got, copper tone, you got banana banana what's the banana yeah. one those are the three all those ones. guys have reef safe sunscreens <laughs> now that just don't have oxybenzone in them so that's that's a good product uh shift uh, you know when i first heard about it i have to admit this when i first heard about it i thought you know sometimes you know, the Enviro community goes a little over to board. I mean, but mm -hmm. <laughs> that was my first impression. But we've done some stories on this. We've read more about it. It is a it is a hormone mimicking chemical. It it it, it has been demonstrated in the lab that it changes, particularly in fish, it can change the reproductive uh, yeah. uh, capacity. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a real thing. And and when you you know, like on a certain beach with. 10,000 people on it, which is not a big number every day, slathered Feasible, yeah. in layers of this stuff. It's real. I think it's, I'm absolutely convinced yeah. this is something we well, can deal with. Next time you get yeah. in the water with sunscreen on, just yeah. look at the surface of the water <laughs> yeah, and the there's slick. a film. <laughs> there's an oil you slick. You puddle around yourself. Yeah. yeah so do. so it, yeah. you're making and, and an environmental impact. Eliminate that. Yeah. yeah. But I think what is incredibly important and part and parcel to this is understanding you know, as, as you're coming out to Kauai or Hawaii and you're you're thinking oh I want to protect the reefs so I'm going to wear my reef safe sunscreen and that's very important but you also have to remember that stepping on the reefs is going to be harmful for them yeah uh, any you know, taking things from the reefs there's, there's a lot of those yeah. just being respectful to the environment and not crushing it is uh, just as important as what you're putting on your body I think both of those are really um, 100%. big things to remember. 
It's true. As a scuba diver, yeah. Uh, you know, I remember in the 70s, we would go chip off chunks of coral and pick up every shell we could find. And it was absolutely right. the wrong thing to do. And I am completely embarrassed by the fact that's how we were. And it's but, but you guys weren't the only ones and aren't the uh, still happening now. It well, is. It's yeah. uh, well, it's so, so important that there are people who who spend the time and thank God for the newspaper and the our Garden Island paper that there is a locally supported newspaper with writers and editors who get to know this community, know this island and can keep up with it. Uh, that's mm-hmm. you know this is the eyes and ears and what the what the press has always been and 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 I'm afraid to say we're losing a lot of that capacity and uh, so ladies and gentlemen Jessica Ells right with the Garden Island right. newspaper from Kauai Hawaii the island of Kauai uh, and the environmental reporter uh, thank you so much for being on the American Shoreline podcast I extend this invitation fairly regularly but i mean it i would love to hear from you again in in three months or six months and when things are changing on the island we would love to hear back from you and have another conversation and and keep uh, up it with would us. be my pleasure the, the doors open yeah it would be my pleasure definitely let's touch base again in three months and see where we're at well thank you so much yeah. jessica it's it's great to uh get the update from the garden island and uh we look forward to talking to you again in the future. All right. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I appreciate talking about this. These are important things that uh, I obviously have a passion for. So thanks Could, for letting me share. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Thank you for your time so much. Appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. I hope again on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Jessica, we got to do the thing. How do they find the newspaper? What's the website? How do people reach you on Twitter? What about all that kind of stuff? All right. So go to www.thegardenisland.com. That's the newspaper. I, um, I'm i not on Twitter right now, unbelievably. <laughs> You're going to get trouble from <laughs> Tyler. <'cause laughs> I know. I try to tweet my, I know, I know. my pods <laughs> out. You gotta, you gotta tw- I'm considering. What about Facebook? I, I can skip that, but yeah. we, uh, but anyway. But. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Jessica Else. Uh, the Garden Island is also active on Facebook. And uh, Great. And I think those are all of the ways that you can find me. But yeah, definitely keep posted. Facebook's probably the easiest way to see what we're up to. Right well, you now. know, it's getting dark. It's going to be, you know, in Texas even, it's going to get gloomy and lousy. And so I'm going to go to the uh, Garden Island newspaper Facebook page once a week and get a little sun shot and some beautiful yeah. photography, so I can remember that it's not all gloomy and dark and tr- and leafless. Yes. Yeah, definitely follow follow the Garden Island on Facebook too, or excuse me, Instagram too, because we have a lot of those uh, just like quick shots. If you're looking for a little dose of vitamin C, right. definitely hit that up. <laughs> It'll help you out. Thank you, Jessica. Really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Yeah. Look forward to talking yeah. to you again. Sounds good. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. We have, I definitely appreciate it. Love to reside.